I think if we all took the approach of, even if I'm not doing it, if, if what I'm writing or saying, I can look you in the eye and say, then you should be able to do it. If you can't do it, then you probably shouldn't. You probably shouldn't hit that post button. I think that's one of the problems right now we have in our society. We, Welcome to the Isle Podcast. I'm John Froze, a former state representative and state senator in the state of Michigan. And I'm David Rutledge, also a former representative in Michigan. Together, we've seen firsthand how the Isle separates one side from the other. The Isle can, in many instances though, bring us together. Today, we will explore just how the Isle has influenced our leaders and public servants, Republicans and Democrats elected and appointed. So join us in the aisle where together we can deepen our understanding of the things that separate us and explore just how we can work together for the common good. Hey David, it's sure good to be back in the aisle here so that we can talk a little bit about what's happening across the aisle. Uh, the aisle podcast is, is again going to welcome a fantastic guest. Uh, 2013 elected in a special election to the Michigan Senate from the Michigan House of Representatives, where he served with you, none other than the current minority leader in the Michigan Senate uh, for his second term. Uh, that would be none other than Senator Jim Ananick. So, David, I look forward to talking to him, and I know you do, too. John, you've got it right when you said um, a, a very special guest. Uh, Jim Ananick uh, and I served together on the House side. Um, and uh, this is a special individual, one who um, who doesn't wear his uh, his political affiliation on his shoulder. Um, we, he is one who uh, I have observed personally uh, reaching across the aisle rather than just staying on one side of the aisle. So I'm excited. I, I am glad that, uh, to welcome him into the aisle. I think we look forward to welcoming Senator Jim Ananick into the aisle. Thanks for having me. Hello, Jim. Uh, how you guys doing? Hey, it, it's great. Uh, great to see you, number one. And number two, great that you carve out some time in your schedule to spend with John and I. Well, it's my pleasure. I look forward to it. And, and we hope that this um, that this will be um, enjoyable and instructive to uh, to people who tune in and watch uh, watch this interview, I'd, I'd like to start by um, asking you about uh, about your journey. Y you started as a classroom teacher, uh, and and you find yourself now the minority leader in the state senate. Can you describe to us that journey? And any uh, any pitfalls along the way? I sure can. Um, if you don't mind, I go a little farther back, if that's all right. Um, so when I was growing up uh, in Flint, uh, where I've spent most of my life, um, my mom and dad uh, grew up there as well. Uh, my dad uh, dropped out of high school, uh, went to the military. You know, he was the GI Bill to kind of get um, the life that I was uh, I was able to leave, which was a life he was never able to leave. Uh, sort of a middle middle class. Um, you know, uh, had things that uh, that he was never able to to have growing up, and he worked really hard to make sure that could happen. But obviously, it was the GI Bill that allowed that to happen. My dad was involved in, in politics, uh, never elected office like I am, but in uh, what used to be a uh, an office in Flint called the Ombudsman's Office, which was a public investigator. His job was to sort of uh, be the, the eyes and ears and the watchdog for the community in Flint. 
Uh, and then that was a set term. And my mom passed away when I was a little kid. I was 10 years old. He actually left early uh, to take care of me. Uh, and you know, we had Social Security. Just, uh, my dad had Social Security benefits from when my wife, I'm sorry, his wife, my mom died. Um, <clears throat> and he was able to you know, sort of scrimp and save and stay home for a little while. Uh, while I um, was in school so he could be around me. Not everyone can afford to do that. And some of those programs uh, have been cut back over the years that allowed him for him to do that. Uh, you know, we would, we would use, you know, uh, go to the Mott Community College Dental Clinic because we didn't have insurance. Uh, but he always wrapped his arms around me, both, you know, figuratively and, and literally so that we didn't, I didn't know that we had uh, struggles uh, when I was growing up. Uh, I always had love, I always had, um, you know, the, the basic necessities, uh, and uh, I had him. And, and then as I got older, he decided to go back into teaching uh, and became a teacher in the Flint schools, both at the elementary and middle school level. Uh, and then when I graduated school and went to college, I did what a lot of, a lot of kids do. I said, I don't want to do, have anything to do with what my parents did. Uh, and then I went into politics and taught. <laughs> so I, uh, I uh, came to the conclusion that, um, you know, that the life of service is something that I wanted to have. Be at least a large portion of, uh, of my life, and um, so I. Uh, excuse me. I um. Uh, I, after college, I went and, and worked for Congressman Kildee. Uh, that's Dale Kildee, not, not Congressman Dan Kildee. And both in his campaigns, then in Washington D.C. Uh, and then uh, my father unfortunately passed away when I was about 24 uh, years old, and I just decided I wanted to move home. I had the house there. I had you know a lot of family. Well, a lot of friends. I didn't have a lot of family, but a little bit of family there. I moved home, worked, continued to work for Congressman Kildee, and then I went back to school for teaching. Uh, and, and then I taught, and I, I ran for office in 2004, the first time, and I lost a very close race, 137 votes, but it was counting. And, uh, and I was teaching after that, and I ran for city council. Uh, and then I ran for um, state house again. That's when we started serving together, David, in 2010. I yeah. uh, served with you there for three years before I came over to the Senate and got to know John. And, uh, and then some of the rest is history. So I've, um, I spent a lot of time in the classroom in Flint. And before that, a little bit of time in Carmen Ainsworth, which is sort of an uh, ring suburb of Flint uh, with very similar uh, demographics and um, financial situation. Uh, and I actually loved it. It was, it was the best job I ever had. Uh, I love what I'm doing now, but, um, you know, teaching history mostly, um, I taught a little bit of government, a little, a little economics, but um, mostly history. Uh, at the middle school and high school level was just amazing. Uh, it was very fun. It was it was great to have that level of dialogue and and most of what history is is just giving a concept to a kid and then listen, listening listening to them and and helping them find out how that relates to them right both now and uh, potentially in the future. And it was really a lot of fun. And you know because you can make history just about dates or you can make it an exercise in critical thinking. And that's what I chose to do. Uh, and I hopefully I, I touched some kids' lives and, and made it, you know, at least made it relevant to them. Um, it's, it's funny because it, it does intersect, but I stopped watching the news, at least local news, for a long time because I would see a lot of my students either killed uh, in jail uh, or, um, you know, or something, you know, or harmed in another way, and I just couldn't, couldn't keep doing it. Uh, so my life, um, politics kind of got... Um, I was doing politics with teaching, but I thought that I could serve even more people by going to the state level. And I took those experiences with me 
Uh, and I still sometimes keep in touch with students. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes I still see um, their names pop up in, in, in ways that I, I wish I wouldn't. But, um, you know, it's been it's been it's it's made me who I am. Uh, it's a big part of my life. Um, and I hope to continue to to work on those issues. Jim, that's one of the things that I find to be really um, amazing about watching you and working together with you uh, across the aisle and, and, and throughout our experience together. Uh, your ability to tell a story, and and that's clearly been honed in the classroom. How have you been able to use those same skills that you had in the classroom and transfer that into this experience of working with legislators from all different backgrounds, from all over the state, all with different experiences that inform who they are? Uh, how do those skills transfer into a legislative role like you have today? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I wish I could say I was... Um, I did it, um, what you just described there, with a sense of purpose. I think I just came in. I remember that orientation, David, that we went to together at MSU, that, that you went to as, as well, John. Uh, we had a large class. It was over 40 of us, I believe, uh, in, a, in, a, in a pretty, uh, I think it was over 60, as a matter of fact. I think 40 Republicans and 20-some Democrats, as a matter of fact. And the political landscape changed that election, if you remember, John. Yes. We have those elections that happen on both sides of the aisle where there's large swings. And um, I can't say if I came in with a different, if, if the election would have been different, if I would have been a different legislator, but what I decided to do, which is similar to what I did when I was in the classroom is, you know, in a classroom you have, and I'm not trying to be disparaging, you have percentage, it's like a bell curve. You have a percentage of kids who are gonna get an A no matter whether I was there or I wasn't. Percentage of kids that have struggles that are, beyond their life, the issues they're dealing with in their life are way more important to them uh, or, or way more pressing to them than whatever I'm going to teach them about, you know, civil war. And then there's the kids in the middle that, um, you know, I can make an impact on. I try to help all those kids and I try to listen to all their concerns and I make sure that they know that I care about them every day, no matter what. Um, I try to take a similar approach when I came into the legislature. Um, I have a funny story, if you don't mind. Um, John and David, you both know a former colleague of ours named Dave Ajima. Uh, I, I was a servant appropriations with him, and I thought to myself, I'm going to get to know every single person in this chamber, and I'm going to see if I can find a connection to them. So I like, I like books. I got a lot of books uh, in my home. I have a little study, and I found this book, a, a biography. Uh, I might have been an autobiography. It doesn't really matter, about Curtis LeMay. He was the, you know, you know, he was a, a Air Force general, Joint Chief of Staff, ran with, I think, George Wallace on the independent ticket, um, you know, wanted to bomb Hanoi into, into submission. And I thought, you know what, Dave Ajimo was an Air Force yeah. uh, veteran. Mm. He often wanted to book. bomb things into submission, too, didn't he? Yeah, <laughs> even up, into, even up into, the, into, the 20, into the 2010s, he still wanted to do that, I think. So I thought, I'm going to give him this book. I got to have something I could find this guy to talk about. And we had a little interest in airports because I had an airport. He was a, you know, but I never could get a connection with him. I remember walking back to the house chamber, a house floor, excuse me. No, I'm sorry. From the, from the Capitol to the house office building. I, I said to him, Hey, I got this book. I got something I want to give to you. And I, I showed it to him. He said, I never much cared for the brass. And I said, you know what? <laughs> There's 110 people. I could not, I could not have relationships. <laughs> I did everything I could to find a way to, but on everybody else, I always try to say, their experience is different than mine. Their background is different than mine. That doesn't mean it's better or worse than mine. 
So that's why I've been able to work with so many people because uh, in a classroom, you can't say, well, I like that kid. I don't like that kid, right? I mean, you can. I mean, there are teachers that do that, but that's, you're never going to be successful because you have to, you have to you know, open your arms, open your heart to every kid in that classroom if you want to see what makes them tick and realize that every student learns differently and every legislator has different priorities. So that's, I think, why I've approached things the way I have, uh, whether it's, you know, whether it's, I mean, each person can determine whether I've been a good or bad legislator or been effective or not. But my approach has been everyone came for a reason and their reason may be different than mine, but it doesn't mean it's better or worse than mine. Uh, and if there's something we agree on, if we don't agree on the other 99 things, okay, so what? And I've had people say to me, how can you work with that? And then fill in the blank. And I just say, well, we care about that issue together. And that's why we're going to work together on that issue. And I don't care that we don't agree on 99 other things. I'm going to fight them tooth and nail on those other ones. But, uh, um, you know, it's, it's important also to remember we have a job to do. And we have a constituency that doesn't care about, um, you know, a list of slogans that we may all, you know, uh, ascribe to at times. We want us, they want us to get things done. And that's what I've chosen to try to focus on, um, you know. For better Jim, or worse, that's been my approach. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jim, Jim as, as I was doing research uh, and and, um, and kind of looking at your background, I think I think I'm right in saying you you are one of the few, if not the only, uh, minority leader to to have been elected uh, minority leader in your caucus twice consecutively. And, and uh, can, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, take us inside a caucus um, in terms of trying to keep people, uh, trying to keep them together or trying to address uh, issues that uh, that may be divergent uh, from where uh, where you're trying to go? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And um, I think you're right about the um, minority, at least, especially in the, in, the, in the world of term limits, at least. Um, so one of the things I try to do is I'm very I try to be very transparent. Uh, I explain to people where I think well, where I plan on being, where I think the caucus should be if there is a caucus issue. Uh, and then I try to walk them through what I think their position is, or what, the, what I think, why I think they should vote a certain way if, if I if I believe that they should. Often, I think you, know, you just look at the issue and just determine what's best for your constituency which a conscious may say, and, and, and just sort of make a choice. And often that's where we, we land. And I've, I've actually often, I've not often, but I've many times actually sat down with somebody and explained to them why they should vote the exact opposite way I should. Uh, because I think for their, you know, for their community or for what they want to do, their position should be different than mine. It's unusual. I mean, a lot of leaders don't do that. Obviously their job is to try to get, um, we, I got to get to 20 in the Senate, 56 in the house and then get the governor to sign it. But, you know, I also don't think tricking somebody into taking a position that may, may help me in that moment will help, will help them or me long-term. Um, I remember, if you remember this, David, there was a, when we were in the house together, I wasn't a leader at the time, but I, you know, I, you know, a lot of people look to all of us uh, on specific issues, you know, criminal justice. I, I was talked to John about a lot of those issues and many other things he cared about. David does a lot of issues, education, many other things we've talked about, I mean, you've cared about. Um, I sat next to a uh, former state rep, uh, Phil Cavanaugh, if you remember him. 
Yes. Uh, and his dad was the you know last uh, one of the last, uh, he, he was a mayor of Detroit. His daughter's in the legislature now. I remember there was a, a contentious issue that we were working on related to tenure. And I was a teacher and people talked to me about it. And I, I remember I listed off five reasons that someone could vote for the tenure bill. And, um, and he was sitting next to me and, and the bill, the board went up and I voted no. And he said, what are you doing? I said, I didn't say I was going to vote for it. I said, there's five reasons why someone could vote for it. <laughs> I, didn't say, I said, if you, if I told you, if I told you multiple times, I was going to vote no, but people, it, but my point was to him is, well, you, you seem to want to vote for this. And this seems to be something you uh, think is important. Well, here are five things you could hang your hat on is why you did. And he finally got it, but he was kind of, you know, um, there's no shot clock in the house. So he had time to yell at me for a while. And I said, no, I never said I was going to vote for it. I was pretty clear I wasn't there yet. Um, and I had some concerns with it, but you seem to want to vote for it. And I thought, here are things you could. Uh, and I try to do that with, that, with the leader. I, I sit down with somebody and say, well, what, do you, what does your heart tell you? You have, you know, and a lot of bills are things that your heart may not care about, whether it's a, you know, it's a, it's a regulatory issue. It's something you just, you know, you, we have to vote on, but you don't really care one way or the other. And then I say, well, I mean, here are the pros, here are the cons. Um, if it's a, if it's a core issue with you, then I would say, then you should, you got to vote whatever your conscience tells you for always vote, whatever your heart tells you to do first. But if it's one of those issues where there are multiple things you have to weigh, I just weigh the, help them weigh the pros and cons and say, well, what do you think now? Um, so I try not to put the pressure on folks ever because I actually think that doesn't work one. And, you know, they're, 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 they're beholden to their constituents as they should be. Right. And their conscience should tell them which way to go. But I think that's why I've been able to get credibility with because I'm very, you know, um, here's why I am. Here's why I'm here. Here's um, where I think you should go. But if you don't want to do that, here's, Here's some reasons why, you know, you could say you didn't want to do it. Jim, one of the things that I, I, I find um, challenging when I when I have served with many different leaders, such as yourself, both on the minority side and on the majority side, is the challenge that they have to carry the party's message at a time that 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 may or may not be where your heart is in terms of how you want to play, how you want to run that play itself. But but this is this is a tough environment. It's a tough environment where where reaching across the aisle sometimes requires you to stand aside the aisle and take a shot. Yeah, I know that's not the most comfortable position for all of our leaders. Some relish in it. Is it someplace you think that 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 it belongs in the fight? Is it is it how you like to do it? What what how do you manage that side of your role as minority leader? Yeah, Um that's a good question. And I don't know. Um, I, I wish I could say I manage it perfectly every time. I don't think I do. I, I'm just like anybody else, uh, or I should say that I think I'm like most people, you know, when I know to like on a, tomorrow, we're going to do something contentious. I'm up the night before thinking about it. Like, how am I going to, how am I going to talk about this? How am I going to, how am I going to try to, you know, what's my role, right? Is it, is it to, to be the, um, the, the, the voice, uh, opposing it and trying to be uh, to, to sort of make sure that the position, the opposing position is being heard. Um, you know, it's tough. I, I don't, um, I try to, what's, I don't know if it's different. My approach is, John, if we're on two sides of an issue, I'm going to walk up to you first. And I think you know that about me and tell you, no, yes. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be with you on this one. And I got to do, I have to 
oppose it. And so that you don't, you don't see my name pull up, you know, obviously in the House and Senate for folks that aren't as involved as we are, my name's going to go up on that board in the Senate, but my name's going to be up there to speak. And I don't want you to ever be like, huh, I wasn't expecting that. Um, so I at least have the tough conversation first. Um, you know, I do that with Shirky. I did the same thing with, with Mikoff. Um, I think I even did it with Randy when I was there for a year and a half, even though I wasn't leader. When I was going to get up and say something like that, I'm going to give you a bit of a heads up, you know. Uh, and I'm not asking for permission, and I'm not saying right. um, that I expect to change your mind, but I want to make sure people understand that there is a – I think sometimes we're, we're – there's a couple things I think is wrong. There's a number of things wrong with our society at times. But I think, one, um, we operate as if – I believe in if I'm going to say something, I should be able to say it to your face. If I can't say it to your face, then I shouldn't say it. If I can, it's easy to put 140 characters on a Twitter, uh, on a tweet, and expect uh, and have no consequences for it because I'm not looking at the person I'm saying it about. Uh, but I think um, if you can say it, if you feel comfortable saying it to their face, you should you should you should be okay to say it. Uh, that, that, did that you ever have one, Jim, that you had to put? Did you ever have one that you had to put back in the bag? Did you ever have one oh, yeah. of the circumstances that you, <laughs> yeah. you, you had to put back in the sure. bag and said, man, I, I overstepped or I overreached. Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I, sh I should have explained myself better. Uh, yeah, 100%. And I'll tell you, the bag's smaller when you try to put it back in again. It's a lot harder to put it back in once you've done it. Um, I've, I've done it in the last this year. Uh, I took a shot at Senator McBroom on something, and he may have deserved it, may not have. But, uh, you know, I've served with him since 2010. Um, I am genuinely, second, like I would, I am genuinely friends with both of you. Uh, right. If you needed something, I think, you know, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't break, uh, the confidences that we have to have in, in the world we, we live in. Um, we have to know we can trust each other. So, you know, I don't, I don't talk about personal things unless the person brings it up, but I've gotten to know a lot of people. I've gone to a lot of funerals. I've gone to, a, yes. uh, you know, because that's what we, that's what we do. Right. Um, but it's there's been times when I sometimes there's that feeling of I can I can jam, I can really jam them up on this one. I can really uh, I can really take that shot. And it's fun when you're saying it. And then afterwards, you sometimes have to say it's kind of a cheap shot or that was, you know, I, and uh, you can see me even I'm even struggling talking about it now because it's a tough balance you have to reach. Um, it's the fun thing you can tweet or say about somebody that gets a lot of likes and people love it. Uh, or it's the reasoned argument that explains why the position isn't the best position that nobody cares about right, right that nobody right. That you don't get any shares on you don't get any likes um but i don't think you know what what advances our democracy the most what advances the position the most how do you change people's minds it's the it's definitely not the 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 angry tweet that shows you that you you, know, you really got them um that just divides us more um, there are times to make sure that you're vocal and loud and strong about your position. But I think the personal attacks is is not my, just not my approach. You know, I'm not suggesting I've never done it. That's one of the ones I probably had to feel like I had to take back, or at least I feel guilty about it. Um, but I try to walk out of that chamber with my head high, as I do when I walk in. Uh, and, um, you know, I think I think if we all took the approach of, I'm going to look, even if I'm not doing it, if I can look in, if, if, if what I'm writing or saying, I can look you in the eye and say, uh, then you should be able to do it. If you can't do it, then you probably shouldn't, you probably shouldn't hit that post button. And I think that's well, one of the problems right now we have in our society. We 
quick to quick to slam somebody and have no consequences for it. So, Jim, um, uh, speaking of slamming somebody, uh, I don't think uh, what side of the aisle you're on or, you know, from what persuasion you come from. I don't think anybody can deny that the Flint water situation was a human uh, tragedy. And you were right in the midst uh, of it. Uh, I'd like you to walk us through, if you would, or at least share your thoughts. I'm particularly interested in whether whether you place blame someplace and and, and um, what you see down the road for people that you that you represent right now uh, who are who are trying as best they can uh, to uh, to to move uh, beyond that crisis, even in the midst of, of um, people who will carry the scars of it. Can, can you just give us a snapshot? Uh, it may, I know this is a wide-reaching question, but you can give us a snapshot of how you uh, carry that, deal with that, and, 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 and how you try to handle it as you look to both sides of the aisle. Yeah, I mean, that's a... It's a tough question, David, um, but it's one I'm, I'm happy to talk about. Um, and it's one that we're kind of dealing with right now, right? And both in Benton Harbor and Hamtramck, um, both um, I'm, I'd be happy to talk to, I have spoken to their representatives, some of them already uh, about this, uh, just to make sure that some of the same mistakes um, that were made in Flint uh, aren't made again. Uh, and that the process, we, the things we should have learned from or did learn from in Flint can be used as a way to, to help uh, those communities not have to suffer some of the things we had to suffer. Now, when it comes to blame, um, in the beginning, I just didn't have time for blame. I just couldn't, we had so many things we had to triage that we couldn't focus on that. And I used to get asked, and that's a question that a lot of reporters uh, understandably and fairly want to ask someone like myself and others. And when it came to the criminal, whether it was civil or, or the criminal side, I always just said, I don't think anybody should be above the law. No one should be taken off and said, oh, they didn't, you know, they shouldn't be looked at, but no one should be uh, targeted either, right? It shouldn't be going after someone because it makes the, the, the headline. It should be whoever did wrong, the law, the, whatever, the law, whatever the law says, take it, follow it all the way to the end. And that's who should be held accountable. I never wanted to say this person or that person um, was 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 to blame. Um, systematically, there was a lot of problems, um, and I, I've tried to address it. I, I'm trying to work with Jeff Yark in the House on making changes or repealing uh, the emergency manager law. Yeah, you have to have a measure in place that allows for communities that have like townships, schools. That are making that are in the financial spiral to get out of it. You have to have something. So taxpayers have to be protected if mistakes are being made or corruption. That has to happen. You have to have some emergency management system. But the lack of accountability in um, the current emergency manager system is part to blame, both for some of the aspects of Ben Harbor, but a lot of what happened in Flint, um, because it's a it is a literally just a ledger approach. And you have to have some measure of 
um, uh, of the human element to it. Um, and, and, and it's, it's one of those examples and I'm not being, I'm not trying to be partisan here, but where the emergency managers go primarily is in urban communities that have seen population declines and other issues of finances and revenue based on a, the system we have in our state, right? The way we allow for cities and local governments to, to, to gather the resources. They're the first to see the problems. Most of them aren't where the people that were writing the law live. And it's not, I'm not, it's not, this is just a point in fact, right? I mean, it's not a criticism. There are Republicans that represented those communities and they, they, they represent them to the best of the ability. It's just like I represent my communities. But when I, when I met with the, the governor's team after Flint, I would try to walk them through just things I know about Flint because I served on the city council. I just, I know this details of the community that they weren't aware of. I remember one example, and I, and I don't want to get into the details here, but like, I remember talking to Nick Corey, who is still someone I talked to, you know, he was a treasurer at the time. Um, he was telling me, I said, you know, you're, you're doing water credits for Flint. I said, one, it's not gonna be enough money. Oh yeah, I said, I'm telling you, it's not gonna be enough. You're gonna come back for more. And I'm gonna tell you why. And, and I, you know, and I remember people getting frustrated at me. I said, you're, I, I just want to do this right. I'm not looking for more money or less money. I want the appropriate amount of resources to address this problem. And I, and I remember talking to Nick and in Flint, we have a water bill that comes out like probably like everybody else gets and it has water and sewer on it. I said, if you don't separate these bills, what you're going to have is the money is going to go, it's going to get deducted too quickly because you're going to have the water and the sewer credit and no one's going to pay either. What you have to do is send the sewer bill out so that people still pay for a service and you don't affect the fund balance there and you have the, the water credit for longer. And you can also, you know, when he said, Nick would kind of pull me aside and said, they can't even do that. I said, Nick, what do you mean they? You're still there. You're running this, the state's running the city. And it was one of those things where they, they just weren't grasping that like, this isn't like a, the locals have no say in this. That's part of the problem. So the blame is the mistakes. And I don't think it was intentional. I don't think anybody set up the emergency manager law to, to, harm, to harm anybody. It, that was never, it was, it's these, putting these policies in place is difficult. I mean, we've worked on a lot of issues that are, they're not easy. Yeah. And it was a partisan endeavor because it happened right when we first got elected. And it wasn't, it wasn't like I said, nobody did it on purpose. They were looking at the ledger and saying, we got to fix this. And they missed the human element of it. And as we were, when we, we, and we dealt with it. So um, a lot of people were to blame because the lead and copper rule is, is and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm getting really policy here, but I, it, it matters. It's not, a, it's, not a, it's not set up to worry about the health of human beings. It's about a test, testing module, and making sure you test the right amount of, uh, right amount of communities, sorry, right amount of households, and doesn't say, well, Obviously, if this is a problem here, you're going to have a problem here. You have to have two tests in a row that are violations in order for it to be to be to ding the problem. Well, clearly, if you can't get if the first round of testing is is a failure, the second or it doesn't matter if the second round is or not because you would you would be out of compliance. But the, the point I'm making here is we didn't think about the people. It was all about is this ledger lining up right. Uh, can we save enough money here? So that was really, there's a lot of people to blame. Um, but at the time when I was dealing with it, I just couldn't focus on blame. And I figured Attorney General, time Shooty, and now Nessa will deal with that. 
uh, the, the civil side will, will work its way through the courts. I just have to make sure we get safe, get information and services to people in Flint. And, uh, but it's, it was uh, probably one of the most trying times I had. Uh, I was living there. I had a little baby at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was going through everything that my constituents are going through. I was, I was scared. I was skeptical of information. I still am. Uh, it's changed me uh, as a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some ways, for the better, I saw the real humanity in people. Because a lot of people stepped up. But it also made me a little more jaded, too. I won't lie about that. It just did. Yeah. I can see how that would happen. And, and having walked that with you in the legislature at the time and watching that entire um, tragic situation play out over the many years that it has, it is it, it is a bit of uh, of a shock to see now communities like the community I represented in Benton Harbor um, facing these same sorts of questions. I, I, do you think we have a better playbook now, Senator? Are we in a better position now with a playbook to be able to to execute plays that will, in fact, pay attention to the community and the members of the community themselves while also trying to solve the problem? Yes, I think so. Um, one of the, I introduced a bill um, with Senator Randerwall called Filter First, which is basically just the concept of we should assume that schools and big centers across the state and really across the country, but I, you know, I don't have any role over that. I just got the state here um, that are, that have, because, especially because of the age of when these buildings were, were, um, were um, put in place, that they um, that we should assume that they are uh, have led, and we should put the filter on first, then test, and then make changes. You know, remove lines, things of that nature. If uh, if we if we test and find out that's a problem, um, so we should operate as if most of our communities have issues with with their water. Um, not, I don't think and that's especially to true too, isn't it? Because of the change in the lead and copper rules. When you and I were serving together, um, yep. and David, I don't think you were in the house when that bill came up. Um, but when we changed those lead and copper rules, it essentially uh, took the majority of our older communities. Out took of them out of compliance. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it shows you that we had the wrong lead and copper rule in the first place, right? Because yes. no amount of lead is safe. But Correct. and and to the playbook question, back to that, I think now we know. Most, and we didn't, the problem was nobody was, we have these NSF certified filters. There was no NSF certified filters for whole house filters because nobody ever thought about going through the process. Um, now we know that there are some, right? And we know we know a lot more about our water systems and we also know more about how, how to protect people. So for Benton Harbor, for example, we should just make sure everyone has a uh, filter. In the beginning, they should have told people and, and it took them a little while, but they're now telling people, don't drink the water, use bottled water, then get an accurate, get a testing protocol in place, which is what they're doing now. Uh, and because after, over a certain parts per billion uh, lead, filters don't work. Um, they're very good for primary protection. They're very good for uh, even, even, even large amounts of lead, you know, 150 parts per billion or less. And in many cases, some of the filter studies we've seen, they actually go beyond that, but they're not certified beyond that. So for folks, to tell people don't drink the water because just giving people pieces of paper saying, well, look at this information. That's not say, say the words, don't drink the water. We're going to get you bottled water. We're going to get you tested. And then we're going to put filters on it as we replace the lines. It's a, it's, it's not a super complex approach, but transparency, honesty, trusting, you know, giving people information. And then, and then uh, you know, uh, 
and then doing the things that need to be done, I think uh, can go a long way. And it's also a way to build that trust because if you live in a community like that, and you know, for Benton Harbor, there was three years of warnings. Um, you know, we can talk. That's that's another discussion about who you know who made those mistakes. It doesn't even matter right now. They they need to get that. They need to get the services. They have safe water for every person in that community. Um, <clears throat> you know, um, it's gonna take a while to build trust back. I mean, I, I'm, I'm over break. I'm gonna head to Benton Harbor, uh, and you know, I'm just to kind of help out, um, just for that you know purposes of, you know, I've been through it. Can I explain. It, Hopefully people will feel, um, you know, even just to pass out water, just to make sure I'm part of the, you know, part of helping. Uh, but I can tell you, I, I know what I'm going to hear from people because I know what I hear from people in Flint. They're not going to trust right. what people tell them. They're going to be angry. They're going to be scared. All the things that they have a right to feel. Uh, and Hamtramck is a similar situation. They're just bigger. Uh, it's a very dense community. So all, all of these things can be, the, the things we learned should be, should be used in Flint and the people that kind of learned it, you know, Dr. Mona, uh, you know, many of other people, Dr. Reynolds, many other people that were kind of on the ground, I've offered, um, and, and they've accepted talking to those individuals uh, and, and getting the help they need. Uh, Abraham Ayash in the house, I've connected him with some folks from Flint. I've, I've connected Senator Ollier. I would do the same for Pauline and, um, and Kim. Um, I haven't talked to them about it specifically. I, I didn't want to with some of these things, I didn't want to look like I'm trying to be, you know, I, I have to, unfortunately, I'm a, I'm a kid from Flint, and I'm always a kid from Flint, but people that don't know me as well just see the title. I'm assuming I'm trying to be political. I'm not. I'm happy to offline talk to them as well because it's their constituents, and I want them to have, I want everyone to have safe water. That's, yeah. well, I'll be working on that for the rest of my life, you know. So, Jim, it, it, you, we listened to how passionately you talked about your experiences in the classroom and what you were um, and how you still follow uh, kids along. Our time in the aisle here is winding down, but I want to get this question in because I've been wondering about it. it in 2017, um, the governor signed into law a bill that you authored that established Flint as a promise zone. And, and yeah. what that did was offer... Um, uh, students an opportunity to go to college or trade school. I'd like to know if uh, since the time that um, that bill came into effect, do you have any any data, anything that indicates how effective uh, that has been for your constituents? No, I don't have any. I don't have any hard data. I just have anecdotal uh, data. Um, and you know how you know we've all done politics. We've all knocked on doors. Uh, and I'm glad they did it. Actually, the Flint Promise folks put, made yard signs, home of home of a Flint Promise uh, graduate. So I can see those signs. So I mean, I, I have a little bit of hard data. You know, more of a kind of a generic poll that we've all seen before when it comes to to to, to, to when we knock on doors. But um, no, I, I, I'm looking forward to that. I've got a good relationship with the Flint Promise folks. I helped raise some of the money, both on the hard side and obviously worked with John and and others on getting the bill passed in the Senate. Um, I know it's having a, a positive effect. I don't have enough data yet to know uh, whether it's been, um, you know, if it's, if it's what, what kind of stabilization it's done for the community. But my neighbor behind me, um, uh, he was the valedictorian at the, the high school in Flint. Um, and I know he's, a, he's using it. Um, I know I, I've seen a lot of folks tell me uh, they're very happy because, you know, they were contemplating moving out of Flint. Uh, and decided that they wanted to stay like the neighborhood, like some aspect of, of living there, 
uh, and that makes it the decision a lot easier. Um, so I was happy to be a part of that. Uh, yes. it, was, it was, it was, it was cool. It's, it was, and we, and the governor, uh, former governor and I, and a few others did the signing at Kettering University in Flint, which is on the forefront of a lot of the autonomous vehicle research. Um, and we, we were able to expand it to Kettering, uh, as an option, uh, you know, engineering schools, um, especially small ones like Kettering, it's, they don't always, they're not always able to, they may be able to accept a kid from Flint, but they may not be able to afford to go there. The Promise Scholarship um, and the work they're doing to not just give them the scholarship, but actually work with them in the younger ages so that they'll, they'll be, uh, you know, successful if they do go, has been really, uh, it's been really exciting. Uh, Senator Ananik, I'll tell you, it's been a pleasure having you join us uh, in the aisle for the aisle podcast. Uh, both fun. David and I believe there's a real opportunity to to share more about who we are and the work that we do. And the work that you now do has been well told in your explanation today. We really do appreciate it. As we leave, I'm curious, who was it? You know, you started talking about your, your dad and and the tragic loss of your mother early in your life. Um, but your dad found ways to make it an, an amazing experience that sent you on a journey of public service. Would you count him as as the mentor of mentors for you? You know, yeah, it's tough. He probably would be. Uh, my mom had a really influential um, part of uh, influential um, part of my life in the early stages. Um, she worked when my dad was in school. Uh, not a lot of women did that back then. Uh, so I, I saw what a, um, you know, I saw a balance uh, in, in home life uh, that wasn't based on any, you know, you know, it was not a, my, my mother and father had a really, they taught me a lot of really important things. They both, my, my mother taught me, I think my, some of my way I treat people, uh, my patients, things like that. My dad taught me the fierce spirit of standing up for what you believe in. Um, so yeah, they both had a pretty big impact in my life. And um, I have a lot of mentors, but I think those two are they probably had the most intricate, inter the they were the most probably influential in my decision to try to help people. Well, we've, we've had the pleasure of being able to not only hear about it today, David, but we've had the pleasure of seeing Senator Ananick in action, uh, both in the House and in the Senate, a true statesman and a true leader in the state of Michigan. Senator Ananick, thanks for joining us. I'd like to add my thanks, uh, Senator, to that of uh, my colleague, John Prose. Uh, it, this has been special and just listening and following your story uh, gives us hope uh, that there is an opportunity, even in the midst of polarization in the times that we seem to find ourselves in now, that there is a space to come together where we can pull together around um, the democracy that we hold dear. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today for the IL podcast. If you liked today's discussion, be sure to like, subscribe, and share the IELTS podcast on Facebook, YouTube, or anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also find us at theislepodcast.com. So step into the aisle and make a difference in your life, just like our guest today. And we'll see you in the aisle.